This morning we're going to be in uh, Matthew 12. We're going to start in verse 1 and we'll be uh, in a couple different places in there. Uh, so just kind of hang on. Uh, we're going to be talking about rest today and also about sin. So naturally the first place that we're going to stop as we talk about those things is uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Because it made, made sense to me. So uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I don't know if you guys are familiar. I'm not a, a person who practices Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Maybe that surprises you, right? Um, but actually the funny thing about jiu-jitsu is it's not necessarily, you know, there's a lot of martial arts where if you hear somebody, hey, I do this or that, you say, oh, that makes sense. Look at you. You're huge. You're strong. Brazilian jiu-jitsu is not like that. It's actually something that it's less about your strength, your physical dimensions, your, your, how your body is, and more about your skill and what you know. It's a different kind of way to engage people, I guess, in combat. And I know several different people who do that I'm familiar with, that I've spent time with, and have a lot of respect for the approach that they have, both to conflict, whether it's physical conflict or whatever, and just to life in general. It seems like it teaches them good things. One of them is a believer, and he was answering some questions that I had about it one day. He's a, he's a very high, high-level competitor in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and he teaches. And I was about uh, 16 years old at the time, and I was obsessed with a different martial art, Krav Maga which is the Israeli national martial art that is used in their military. And being 16, Krav Maga appealed to me because Krav Maga's central principle is that you exert maximum force instantly to end a conflict. I'm a simple being, I'm 16 years old, I say, yeah, that's what I'm into, right? And I was excited about that, I was learning about this thing, and I was talking to this guy about it and asking him, and, and he, he was a kind guy, he listens patiently to me, and he, he said something very wise. He said, I'm known in this place as a man of God, if I have to fight, I can't kill somebody. So he said, instead, he said, I, I can't just go out there and I just bring maximum force. He said, but I do need to win. So I trained BJJ. And I kind of asked him about that. And he explained that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is a martial art that specializes in exerting control of your opponent by manipulating their body against them. So it's about skill and patience. It's not about brute strength and violence. If you've ever watched a mixed martial arts fight, a lot of times, a mix of martial arts, one of the ones that they use when they're on the ground and they're grappling together, they're typically using Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. There's not a lot of motion or outward violence, but there's a brutal struggle going on for somebody who's going to take dominance over the other fighter. You'll see almost nothing happening for a minute, and they're just kind of moving back and forth, and one of them is trying to get an edge, and then all of a sudden, one fighter is going to take control of the other fighter's arm, or his leg, or maybe his airway. And in a few moments, that fight is going to be over. The loser is going to submit very, very quickly. There might not even be blood on the mat. You're not going to see, wow, I can see how he dominated him. But that fighter, the losing fighter, knows that if his opponent had wanted to, he easily could have pressed his advantage to snap a bone, pop a joint out of socket, or literally take his life. He's aware that that's a level of power that that fighter has over him now because he's exerted that skill to put him in a position where he's completely dominant. I was listening to another guy who practices Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, he's a Navy SEAL who has years of combat experience. And it was kind of a weird thing, he's explaining in this video that he, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is still a part of his repertoire. And you say, well that doesn't make sense, you've got, you know, I don't know, a gun, a knife, <laughs> an airstrike you can call in, you've got a lot of other tools, why would you need this? And he explained, well he said it's really simple, he said in certain situations, hitting someone can go on forever and it can be really brutal. You don't actually end a fight when you continue beating someone and maiming them. And that can be a problem, especially if you're in a situation where you don't actually want to harm the person any more than you have to. He says, but if I can control them, the fight's over. I don't want to fight. I want to win. And that's why he trains Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, along with all the other crazy things he does. I promise this is going to make sense in a few minutes. But let's remember this for right now. Many times the way to win is not simple or intuitive, 
and it doesn't make sense to us on a common sense level. But effectiveness is better than constant activity. We don't want to fight. We want to win. All right. Let's read Matthew 12. So this, just to give us a little context, we haven't been in a gospel for a little bit. Um, Jesus has just finished telling people, he's teaching, and he's saying, come to me and I'm going to give you rest. Come to you all who are, are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. We'll come back to that in a while. But Jesus, this is the thing that Jesus is teaching, and he's walking around with his disciples, and he's teaching, and he's just going places. And this kind of thing happens where the, uh, the disciples get Jesus in trouble a little bit. So let's see how Jesus responds to that. From verse 1, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So they're walking around with Jesus. They're enjoying his company, and they're enjoying his Sabbath. Right? It's, it's, it's Jesus's. He made it. We're hanging out with him, and we're just enjoying ourselves. They were doing exactly what disciples should be doing. They're spending time with Jesus, enjoying his company. But, according to the Pharisees, when it says plucking and eating, there's a whole list of bad things that they were doing that they should not have been doing on Saturday, on the Sabbath day. The Pharisees would have broken that down. Well, you reaped the grain with your hands by pulling it off of the stalk, and then you threshed it by, you know, you, you get rid of the, the chaff off of it and, and kind of separate it. You winnow it, and then you prepared food when you put it in your mouth. So that's like four or five bad things that you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath the Pharisees would have said. At this time, God's perfect law was being used as a tool for outward, you know, religious self-justification to make people feel good about themselves. And the Pharisees had totally forgotten what the purpose of the Sabbath was. I read somewhere that rabbis would teach that a man couldn't carry something on the Sabbath in his right hand or his left hand or across his chest or on his shoulder, but he could carry something, good news, with the back of his hand or with his foot, or with his elbow, or in his ear, or on his hair, or in the hem of his shirt, or in his shoe or his sandal. So if you kept that list, like you've still got some options as long as you can get the thing into the hem of your shirt, you're okay. Right? On the Sabbath, you couldn't tie a knot, but a woman could tie a knot in her girdle. So if you had to pull a bucket of water out of a well, a nice life hack that you could use is you couldn't tie a rope to the bucket, but you could tie your girdle to the bucket, and then you could tie that to the rope, and then you could get... You could, you could figure it out from there, right? Get a little, little, little life hack there. The law had been intended by God to bless his people and to reveal to them their need for his grace. But that thing that I just read doesn't sound like any of those things, right? So what was, and it's important that we go very carefully and slowly as we study these things because there's a lot of people, as we're going to talk about, that get confused about this. And they use the law from, from the word in different ways that it was not intended to be used. We need to be very careful. We need to see what is the Lord telling us to do. So let's pay attention. When, when God said, here's my Sabbath, what did he say? Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 through 16, says, And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. And you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. Now that's some serious stuff in there. 
I read words like, yeah, death and there's penalties and you, okay, I don't want to be cut off from my people forever, right? And we read that and we say, oh, wow, like God, God is taking that very seriously. And that's correct. Remember when they heard this, this, there was like rumbling on the mountain and thunder and it was serious. They were afraid with good reason. God was giving them a serious commandment. Is this a commandment with penalties for disobedience? Yes, it is. We can't, we, we don't want to get around that or try and pretend or ignore those things. However, what was the intent of the commandment? It says right in there, he says, this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. The intent is very important, Jesus is about to tell the Pharisees. The intent was to be a sign that the Lord sanctified the people, not themselves. It was to bless them and it was to set them apart. It talks about holy to the Lord. You've got to remember when we talk about the word holy or the word sanctify, there's a sense of otherness in those words. It means you are like this, not like that. That's what the holiness was supposed to carry. That was a different thing they were supposed to do that was unlike the people they were going to be around. Now, remember, this is the intention. But there's been hundreds and hundreds of years of God's people trying, trying really hard to sanctify themselves through God's law. They were using it according to a different intention. They were not doing what God had intended to do with it. And therefore, by the time Jesus, their Messiah, shows up on the scene, rather than being about the things they were supposed to be about, they were about the keeping and the administration and the bickering over God's law. They were using it in a way that wasn't actually blessing. And to the point that now... When the disciples are just about God's work with God, you know, literally following Jesus around and doing the things he has them to do, they're doing God's work quietly and they're receiving resistance from God's people. God's people are saying, no, 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 you can't do that because according to this list that we've made, and, and you, it's very important you understand, the list that I read all those ridiculous things, that wasn't in the law. Right? You, you're not going to find that in Exodus or Leviticus or Deuteronomy. That was a list of things that they had made to tack on to God's law. To say, yes, God's law says this, but I'm concerned that if I don't give you these additional prohibitions, you might accidentally break God's law. So let's go ahead and just be safe and keep this that I made. Right? And in doing that, they've created this place where they're actually resisting the work of Jesus. Jesus is trying to do his work and they're coming up against him and saying, stop doing that because you're breaking our rules. Whenever we are about the Lord's work quietly, we should expect some resistance. That's just going to happen. And sometimes that's going to be from the enemy, right? The enemy is going to assault you in your mind or in your heart. You're going to be discouraged, right? Have you ever, I think Tyler even talked about, Pastor Tyler talked about this last week, that you go on a men's retreat and you come home. And that, I guarantee, if you go on a retreat of any kind and you come home, you're about to have the most discouraging day you've had in a very long time. Why? Because the enemy is just sitting there waiting. He's like, okay, here we go. He's coming back from the retreat. Boom! And everything happens, right? Kids are crying and your wife is upset and it just everything happens all at once, right? You send your kids off and you got to keep this in mind. You send your kids off to a retreat or a, a thing of some time. They come home from camp and all of a sudden you're in an argument with them and, and that's discouraging for them, right? Because the enemy, what? He wants to take away that joy or whatever it is you've been experiencing. He wants to resist the work of the Lord. So it can happen through the enemy doing that sometimes. Sometimes the Lord uses other believers who are in the flesh. And he uses them to oppose the work that you're doing. And I, I don't want to know other believers. Like, yes, the Pharisees in this case, Jesus was pretty clear about where they stood with the Lord. But this doesn't always happen from outside. This can happen from within our family as well. So let's see how Jesus responds to this. Because I don't know about you, but I'm interested. Right? If they're saying Jesus is breaking the law. And the law seems pretty serious about what happens when you break the law. So I, well, how are you going to get out of this one, Jesus? Right? Like, what, what are you going to say? From verse 3. He said to them, Have you not read... What David did 
when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Now, I am an American scientific logical person, and that does not seem like a good point. You No, Jesus, we were talking about, like, you missed the point, Jesus. We were, we were critiquing what you were doing with the law, and you just made this other point, and it doesn't, in our minds, it doesn't really line up. You don't see that as like, oh, good one, Jesus, you got him now. We read that, and we kind of go, huh? That doesn't really make sense. And that's important to note. Jesus is bringing them back to Scripture, right? What does he do? Does he start arguing over the finer points of, well, Rabbi this says that, and Rabbi this says that? So, no, he completely avoids, he doesn't even discuss that. And he goes directly back to the actual Word of God, actual Scripture, and he discusses that. And he shows them the true intent of the Sabbath. It was supposed to be a blessing. It wasn't supposed to be a burden, right? God's commandments are for our good and for our flourishing, whether or not we understand that individually or as a culture. And that's important, right? Because there are some people who take God's commandments and they use them to rule over themselves and others harshly. There are other people who take God's commandments and say, well, he can't mean that because I don't like that, so he must mean something else, right? Whether you get why God's commandment is good for you or not, it's still good for you, and it's still to be obeyed, right? And that's important because we have a culture that wants to either chop up the commandments and get rid of the ones that we don't like, or that sometimes as a result in the church, we say, no, 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 not only here's all the commandments and here's the extra commandments, Neither of those are responding to the fact that God's commandments are intended to bless us. No matter what the commandment is. If God says, don't be angry, it's because being angry is bad for you. If God says, don't engage in sex outside of marriage uh, between a man and a woman, it's because it's bad for you. He loves you. He's not trying to withhold something from you. So understanding God's character, and that's what Jesus is reminding them, is you have to understand the character that's behind the law. And that's going to tell you whether or not the way that you're carrying out the law is what God would want for you. Mark 2.27 says, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So, okay, that makes sense. But what's the thing about, he's talking about David and the priests. The story he tells, and the questions he's raising, show that it's the heart that God is seeking and not outward behavior. Right? He's asking them, why are the priests profaning the Sabbath in the temple? Why was David eating the bread that he was not supposed to eat? And it's important to see, the priests did real hard work on Sunday, that you were not supposed to do anywhere else. Don't, because sometimes people will try and parse this out and say, well, there's a legal way. No, no, no. Jesus was showing them an actual paradox. Like, it actually doesn't make sense. Why do the priests get to cut wood and draw water and kill animals and do a sacrifice? That's all work. That's all stuff that if they did outside the temple, they'd get in trouble. Really. They were really breaking the law. But why is that okay? Well, David was taking the bread. That was holy. You didn't just walk into the bread. It's exactly what he did. He walked in and he said, I need bread. And they said, we don't have any bread. We have this bread. And David said, give me that bread. And they said, whoa, he's the king, but also kind of, he's not really the king right now. And also it's the holy bread. And they gave him the bread. He, that's a breaking of the law. But Jesus is pointing them back to the intention. And he's showing them how weak trying to make a, a legal law for everything is because it can't actually tell you whether or not you're doing the right thing or not because it can't tell you about the intent of your heart. All legalism can do is pile rules on top of rules and hope that human fear and effort can please God. Jesus cut right through this, right? He said, no, 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 I don't care about these rules. Tell me where your heart's at. Tell me where my heart's at. That's how we're going to know whether we're doing what's right with the Lord. David was a man after God's heart, and therefore his relationship with God gave him unique blessings that the Pharisees would never experience and that the Pharisees were actively barring other people from having. 
right? David got to do things, Jesus is saying, like walk into the temple and say, I'm in trouble and I have this unique relationship with God. I'm God's anointed, so I need that bread. I get that this would not normally be how we do this, but this is unique for me. That's what Jesus was pointing to. He was pointing to David's relationship to the Lord. He was pointing to the priest's relationship to the Lord, right? The priests are special. They're set apart. They're doing important work. And therefore, it's different for them. It's not the same thing. You, you can't just point at them and say, well, they're sinning. Well, no, what is their heart? They're working hard for the Lord. It's, it's different for them. And it's important to see that Jesus is saying that he is the same as David and the priest, and therefore it is different for him. He, he's not making an argument, and we'll talk about this in a second. He's not making an argument about, well, you see, what we're really doing is not really breaking the Sabbath. He's saying, we're breaking the Sabbath, and it's okay because I'm here. That's, what, that's literally what Jesus is saying. That is the argument, which is why it kind of doesn't make sense for us. We're waiting for a legal curveball that Jesus is going to, you know, dipsy-doodle their argument. That's not what Jesus is interested in. Jesus is drawing them back to the actual intention of God's heart and to who he is as well. This is why it's so important that we stick with the Lord and we be careful. We keep what God has clearly declared carefully, and then we are careful with everything that man declares. Why? Well, because we know Jesus. We can trust Jesus. If Jesus tells us something, it's for our good, right? Always, all the time. So if Jesus clearly says, do this, and we don't do it, guess what? We know that it's going to hurt us. It's happened to us before, right? I tried. That wasn't good. When someone else tells us, do this, and we do it, sometimes it's a good idea, and other times it isn't. And it depends on who that person is and the intention of their heart behind that and whether that was something we were supposed to hear from the Lord. We can be loose with man's commandments as long as we're being careful to always keep the Lord's commandments. You can't let go of what the Lord's doing. But if you are holding to that and someone else brings you a commandment, it's acceptable, as Jesus is doing, to hold that up to the intention of God's law and say, is this the same thing? Is this doing what God's law is intending to do? Which is exactly what Jesus did. So now he's about to show them that they don't really understand the Sabbath and the intention that God had behind it. From verse 6, he said, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you have not condemned the guiltless. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So, (laughs) he is claiming authority as Lord of the Sabbath and claiming that that gives him authority over the law to explain it to interpret it, to enforce it, and to fulfill it. So again, it's all fine for us in a modern day to discuss, well, I don't know if Jesus really claimed to be the Son of God. Yeah, Jews don't have that problem. (laughs) This is a claim to be the Son of God. You're claiming that you're greater than the temple. You're claiming that you have authority over the law. It's one and the same. He's literally claiming the place of God. God gave us this law. I can interpret it and tell you that you're wrong okay, (laughs) then you must be God, is what you're saying, right? That's very clear what Jesus is claiming. He's calling himself greater than the law, greater than the temple, which makes the Pharisees furious. At the end, we're not going to read it, but at the end of this engagement, they're going to say, okay, he's dead now. Like this, we can't do this, right? That's their reaction to what he's claiming. He calls himself greater than David, right? Which is their national hero, especially at this time. David is like their, yeah, back in the day when David was whooping all of our enemies, like that was their guy. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm I'm greater than him, and he, he, and he did this, and you don't get on him for it, so you can't get on me for it. And it's interesting, he claims to be greater than David, who broke the strict Sabbath law at a time when he was rejected by the nation as the true king. Does that sound familiar? Right? He's literally setting himself up in the place of David and saying, yeah, remember when everybody was trying to kill David, but really he was God's anointed, and he was running around and, and trying to do God's work, and everybody was opposing him, and he broke the Sabbath? Same guy, same thing. This is what I'm doing. 
So he's claiming to have David's place, which is actually the king of Israel, even though he's being rejected, which is super interesting. I don't think they would have missed that. They read their Bible very, very carefully. At this time for Israel, the blessings of keeping the law had been lost by disobedience. They could not do the things that they were supposed to do. They were allowed to do sacrifices, but only because Rome told them they could. The glory had fled from the temple. They didn't have any of the things that they had had before. And God is in the flesh in front of them. Right? So they're looking to all these other things, trying to hang on to them. And the Son of God is literally standing in front of them saying, hey, it's okay. And they're saying, I don't know. I don't, I don't think so because we've got these rules, see. Right? If we respond to Jesus' arguments by trying to pull apart, okay, so what Jesus says, how, then how does that mean? What are the real rules then for keeping the Sabbath correctly? We're missing the point. Jesus is simply demanding that they trust him. He's saying, stop bothering them. They're with me. Whatever they're doing right now is fine because I let it happen. So it's okay because I'm here. That is the argument Jesus is making. It's an argument of authority and of his person. It's not a legal argument. What this means for us, guys, is that we do not need to obsess over rules to protect us from potential sin because we can happily run to Jesus and just let him remake our desires. And yes, I am afraid to teach that. That does bug me a little bit. Just to be really honest with you. You know why? Because that's a scary thing to say. When you read what Jesus is saying here, as if you love God and you want to do what's right, it is a little disturbing. You say, Jesus, that's not, you're saying that it doesn't, that, that feels a little weird to us. Because we want to please the Lord. And that's good. We should want to please the Lord. But how are we going to please the Lord? To believe otherwise, to believe that I need to be obsessed over rules to protect myself from sin, is to believe in a puny God who needs my help to conquer my flesh. That's just honestly what it is. Our flesh is way, way bigger a problem than that, guys. We, it, that shows that we do not truly understand how deep the problem of sin is. If we think that God is needing us to stack up some extra safe rules as guardrails against the guardrail to keep us from getting into sin, we have no idea how big trouble we're in, really. Because if we truly understood our depravity, we'd understand that the only way we're going to have any hope is to literally walk around with Jesus, trusting that if we're in trouble, he's going to confront us case by case, that we really don't have an option. Like we're not able to make a good enough rule to protect us. We need to literally walk around like my kids do all the time asking questions, <laughs> right? Dad, dad, can I eat this? Well, I, it's a banana, and you know that a banana is a breakfast food, and it's 7 in the morning. Dad, can I eat a banana? Yes, you can eat a banana. That's the attitude. It's like, yeah, Dad, but last time you said that, and then I ate three bananas, and I felt bad, so can I eat this banana right now, <laughs> right? That is the level of like relationship we need because we're that in trouble with our sin. We cannot, you know, it's, it's a total band-aid that isn't working to try and make some rules so we don't have to have that relationship with the Lord. It doesn't work. And the Israelites should have been aware of that because God had already tried to confront them on this. In the book of Isaiah chapter uh, 1, Isaiah is confronting the people and he says some things that would have been really shocking to them. Probably still sounds shocking to us. Chapter 1 from verse 13 says, Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden for me. I am weary of bearing them. And he continues to elaborate all these things that they're doing that he just wants them to stop because of their deep, deep sin. And verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. 
So what's the pattern there? He says, you are a mess. You're such a mess that I don't want you to keep trying to keep my law anymore because it's just making me upset. It's, it's, it's a weird juxtaposition where I see you come and he says, you're coming and you're in my court saying, oh, we love the Lord. And then in your heart is all this awful stuff and you've got idols in your home and you're doing all these things. He says, just cut it out. Come to me and we're going to fix this whole sin issue between you and me because that's literally the only way we're going to handle it. And so they should have known. This was in their word. This was in the prophets. But they were resisting it. Because I think probably they were good people. They, they felt like they wanted to love the Lord. And probably they still had the same problem that's in our hearts right now as we're talking about this. So you're saying that my behavior doesn't matter as long as I'm loving Jesus? I can just do whatever I want. And as long as I say, I love Jesus, then, it, then it's fine. Is that what you're saying? And that's concerning. I'm not even making fun of that point. That's a concern. That's a thing we need to think about because that's dangerous, number one. And number two, that's what a lot of people say. A lot of people take that and they say, okay, so as long as I love Jesus, pfft. It doesn't matter. I love Jesus, and Jesus is happy with me as I do this thing that it clearly says in his word he's unhappy with, right? That is our, can be our response. No, I'm not saying that. But I am saying that our obsession is supposed to be to love Jesus, not to rule over others or ourselves with the law, and especially with a law that we made that isn't even God's law, right? God's law is perfect. Our law is not. When we truly love and are loved by Jesus, we will not desire to desecrate the image of Jesus in us with anything, right? Gluttony or anger or unfaithfulness and dishonesty or sexual immorality or any of those things. If we really knew Jesus, then that would not be a desire we would have in our hearts because, well, we know Jesus. The disciples are with Jesus. Do you think one of the, you know, be careful with this point because they did do some really dumb things in front of Jesus. But when they, when they were walking in the Spirit and they were walking with Jesus, they didn't turn around and say, but you know what? I'd really like to have that woman and also my wife. Well, Jesus is standing right here, dude. He's like watching me, right? They, they weren't going to want to do that. Now, they did make mistakes and the Lord gave them grace for those mistakes. But the pattern was that they were being corrected by Jesus. And if they did step out, Jesus was right there to say, no, Peter, we don't cut people's ears off, right? Jesus was right there all the time to say that at any time when they made a mistake. Now, instead of doing this, instead of, of receiving that and saying, this is awesome, this is better, which is what the Jews should have done, we fall into legalism, I think, often because we're afraid to come and get to know Jesus. We're afraid because we cannot control him, and we do not trust that he's going to help us. We think that we're on our own, and this is our job. I need to handle this, Jesus, so I'm just going to go ahead and take care of this. Thank you very much. We're afraid because we're actually walking in sin, we don't want to deal with it. Well, if I became in a relationship with Jesus, then I would have to handle that thing that is buried so far down there that I don't even like to open up the closet and look. And so what, what then? <laughs> what would I do then? If I came to Jesus and he knew about this thing, which is hilarious because he knows. But that's what is going on in our heart. That's what we think. So instead, I'll use these rules to make me feel like I've got it. And then I won't have to address that problem that is going on, right? We're afraid to give the throne of our lives to Jesus. If I'm just going to walk around with Jesus and Jesus is going to call all the shots, then I don't get to make the decisions, right? Then Jesus is probably going to say no to some things that I'd rather he say yes to. And that's going to be a problem because I'm used to, when I make the rules, the thing with legalism is the problem is it's you making the rules. So when I make the rules, if there's a rule that I want to make, I can make it. And if there's a rule that I don't want to make, I don't have to make it. It can just be, this is, this is me setting all the, all the table, deciding, making all the decisions. And I can make a little carve out, as the Jews constantly were doing, where I can say, well, but I really want to do this, so I'll make a way that it's okay. 
I really want to lift the bucket up on the Sabbath. So if I take my wife's girdle, right? That's what we do with our rules all the time. They never are approaching God's perfect holiness because we have desires, so we figure a way to make them okay. And we're afraid of true and deep relationship with Jesus because it's intensely vulnerable. Jesus is going to see us all the time. <laughs> and and we, he does that, but we're going to know it because we're going to be listening. <laughs> we're going to be paying attention to the things that he says, and that's going to be really scary. And I, yes, I guarantee you, it certainly will be. Jesus is going to have some things to say, and they might not be the things that you're even expecting that he says. You might come in thinking, my problem is this, and Jesus says, now your problem is over here. And you're like, oh man, <laughs> that's worse than I thought it was, right? You, it's a kind of a scary trip to take with Jesus. The, none of the disciples made that unscathed, right? A lot of stuff that they were really used to or thought was just fine, um, <clears throat> Jesus wasn't excited about. They lost businesses, they lost family, they lost national hopes and dreams that they had, right? You had zealots and fishermen and all these guys who, they had some plans, and those weren't Jesus' plans. And they lost them. But they were willing because they wanted to spend time with Jesus. We cannot be satisfied with anything or anyone less than the Lord of the Sabbath. It's not going to work. And now I want to pivot to show, because I think, I think we understand this, but this is important not only because, and we'll go back to the object lesson, you can go ahead and beat on your sin all you want, right? You can put on boxing gloves and just wail on it for 12 rounds. Good luck. There's going to be a lot of blood and a lot of screaming, and it's not going to go down. Have you ever watched boxers at the end of a fight? This is why I, this is just a soapbox. I'll just go ahead and say it. Everybody's always like, yeah, that, that MMA stuff is so brutal. Here's the thing. It ends in a couple minutes. Because somebody's on the floor and his arm is back behind his, you know, himself and he knows he'd better tap because he's gonna, about to get that arm broken. It ends really quick. A boxing match goes on for 12 rounds and one guy's got a concussion and it's like brutal to watch. I mean, genuinely, you're seeing men just beat each other and it doesn't end fast enough. Do you see what I'm saying? But when, when you're using the tools that God wants you to use in the way that God wants you to use them, you win. God just wins. He just takes care of the situation. So we know that, right? We know that we want God. We just want to give these things to God. But it's also good because then we're free to do the things that God wants us to do, to accomplish the actual work that God has for us. When we're not obsessed over picking through these rules, deciding which ones we're going to add into our personal rule bucket. And verse 9 shows that that's exactly the work that Jesus wanted to be about. Verse 9 says, He went on from there and he entered their synagogue. I didn't even notice this until I read a commentator, I think it was John Corson, and he said, notice whose synagogue it is now. So this is their synagogue, right? That's, that's the relationship that's going on now. Jesus is going into their synagogue. It's their territory because they make all the rules. And they've tried to make that very clear to Jesus. No, you're doing it wrong, Jesus. Over here in our synagogue. Isn't that chilling? It's the actual Messiah, but he's walking into their synagogue because they still want to be in charge of it and decide how it's going to go. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. So, Jesus again is directly contradicting Pharisaical teaching that was added to God's law. Remember, we read just about the entirety of Sabbath law. God added a few other pointers. Hey, you might want to stay in your house. I know that you guys are obsessed about food and stuff, so just cook your food before so you're not having to worry about it. There's really not a lot of detail. 
And that's the challenge for our hearts, is there's not a lot of detail. It doesn't tell us when my neighbor is messing up so I can get in with it. So I better make some details so I know when that guy has crossed the line. Right? And so because there weren't details, they added some. Well, you can't heal on the Sabbath for sure. Right? That, that wouldn't be good. And Jesus says, show me. Why? Where is it written that you can't do that? I didn't say that. You said that. And so he goes ahead and heals the guy. He shows again that the commandments are there to help us do the ultimate goal, to do what is right, not just to avoid what is wrong. The Pharisees were arguing over their protective additions, and the broken man just stretched out his hand to Jesus. Which one got healed? Right? This guy didn't care. He was like, cool, whatever. It's the Sabbath? Yeah. You see this? <laughs> we got to do something about this. That was his reaction, was faith to, to, to react to Jesus. And the Pharisees were busy being upset that this guy would get his whole life turned around and change and all his problems fixed because it's the wrong day. That's their heart, right? Which, which one is getting the blessing from the Lord, right? And they were hypocritical for caring more about their system than the welfare of another person. And Jesus totally calls that out. I get, I get the sense that there's an additional heat and some topspin on Jesus' remark here. I don't know if that's correct or not. But you can see how he's kind of coming back a little bit more intense. Right, where at first he's saying, well, hey guys, what about David? And then they say, well, are you going to heal this guy? And Jesus said, hey, you're going to pick a sheep out of your pit? Yeah, okay, well, he's not a sheep. Like he's getting more intense with them because he's, he's, they're displaying how hypocritical and how awful their hearts are. They don't care about this guy. The point is not, hey, Jesus, can we, can we bring him back tomorrow instead so you can heal him? The point is, let's, let's see if I can catch you in a problem and I'm going to use this human being as a pawn to try and win an argument with you. True teaching of the word is going to bring healing to us, even as it corrects us and rebukes us. And that's important, right? By bringing healing, I don't mean it's going to be your best life now and it'll never tell you something you don't want to hear. I'm not saying that. It's okay, right? Trust me, I'm not saying that. But I am saying it's going to get you to a place where the Lord is going to heal you. It's not just going to get you to a place where you feel beat up and like you're not, never going to be able to do it and you'd better keep all these rules just in case. That's not true teaching of the word of God because that's not the results that Jesus' teaching had. That was the results of the Pharisees' teaching. The people, it said, were under heavy burdens that the Pharisees wouldn't even lift. That's not what happened when Jesus came to town. People lost burdens, right? People all of a sudden had their lives changed, and they, that guy didn't have a crippled hand anymore. Problem solved. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Remember, this is just what had happened just before, so this is important context. Jesus had just finished teaching. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That sounds good. Right? That sounds awesome. Why not do that? Rest sounds fantastic. And the Pharisees were not allowing anybody to have rest, themselves or anybody else. That wasn't a part of their thing, right? Because rest sounds so, you know, unholy. It doesn't sound super important. I'm important, Jesus. I don't have time to rest, right? That's sometimes how we... How we act in ministry, goodness. Ugh. Isn't that always how sometimes I can be caught up in that so easily where it's just like, well, I can rest. We don't have time to rest. We've got busy things to do. Remember the, I think it's Martin Luther who said, I have so much to do today that it was important for me to get up at you know, three, four in the morning and pray for three hours because I didn't have time to not pray that much. And I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, right now I'm not laying a trip on you legalistically. I'm just saying, that, that heart of like, but I can rest with the Lord, right? Surely I have time. Like, yeah, I've got time. The Lord can take care of all this stuff. I'm just going to relax with the Lord. That is the heart that Jesus is saying. Rest is mandatory for us because there is so much good for us to do that God knows we're either just going to rust out being lazy because we're overwhelmed by all of it, or we're going to burn out being busy. And neither of those things are okay. 
because there's a lot to do. So that's the heart of the Sabbath was Jesus said, listen, I've got so much for you to do in the promised land. Here's a day. Do nothing. Relax. Go to worship and pretty much nothing else. And, and that doesn't mean they were just supposed to sit there in their house and think holy thoughts. You know, it says you can eat, you can hang out with your family, but you just can't do stuff. Stop plowing the field. Stop worrying about the enemy that's over the hill. I'm going to take care of that on this day. You rest. And, and he showed a pattern for doing that because that's in creation. It was to remind people that God rested. Why? Because God's so tired? No, but because God wants to enjoy fellowship. God had finished his thing and now there's fellowship within the Trinity and he just sat there and looked at it, I guess. I don't know, I don't know why God would need to do that otherwise. You know, I can't think of a reason. So it must be that God was just enjoying himself and what he had just made. And he wants us to have a similar experience once a week. You know, just because we don't feel like we need that or that seems weird to us, I don't think we know better than God, right? This allows us to reconnect with the Lord and with each other. It's not failing to be diligent, right? It's not the same thing. It's the break from our work so we can go back to it and be strengthened, right? We, have, we say this all the, ho- all the time in our house. We say, hey, listen, if you're going to rest, you need to rest from something. Right? Because you can't just, it's not just rest, it's not the same thing as idleness. And that's what it gets, a, we, we, we fight over this sometimes. It's not the same thing as being lazy. When you're, you're lazy when you're resting and you haven't done anything yet. <laughs> right? You're, I'm, oh man, I'm just resting. Yeah, from what, man? It's like you go out, you work with somebody, right? And you're like two shovelfuls in and they're standing on the shovel already. And it's like, bro, we rest when we're like halfway done and we're all tired. Like that's when we rest. We, we haven't actually accomplished anything yet, right? Rest is different. When you've worked to the point where you're almost exhausted and then comes around a day of rest, that's when you need rest. And it feels better then too, by the way. Just a little side note, right? Laziness never feels good. You finish a day of doing nothing, which you eagerly anticipated because you're like, I'm going to do nothing. And you get done and you're like, oh, this felt awful, right? I didn't enjoy myself at all. Why? Because you're just sitting there doing nothing. You didn't rest from anything. But when you've worked really hard and then all of a sudden you have a day come around where the Lord's like, you know what, just we're going to do nothing today. That feels amazing. You're like, oh my gosh, like I can enjoy this now because I'm looking at all these things that have happened and I'm thankful to the Lord for this stuff and my body's actually tired. So it's like, yes, please, we're going to actually sit and relax for a bit. Busyness is not the same thing as holiness. And sometimes it actually hinders from it. Sometimes we're using busyness to fill up the massive hole where holiness is supposed to be in our life, right? If I stay this busy at all these things, I won't have to sit and think about the problem that's going on right now. So we got to keep going. We got to stay busy. We got to be making the rules and checking the boxes so we never stop for just a second and realize I am not pleasing to the Lord in any way because that's scary. Right? So we, the busyness doesn't mean that we're doing what the Lord wants us to do. And true rest is very, very important because we have a culture that's filled with just all kinds of just like ambient leisure. You know what I mean? Like just as you walk through the world, leisure is being thrown at you like, here, here's a phone. What, are you gonna, what am I going to do with it? Nothing really. Like not, not anything important, just, just nothing as much as possible, you know. And I'm not being, you know, I have a phone, okay. But, you, you know, like that's the way that our, our culture says, oh, yeah, you need rest. You need some self-care. Well, what does that mean? Just sit on the couch. But like, and, and like read a book. No, just sit on the couch. But it's boring. Yeah, just shh. You don't need to do anything, right? That's our culture is this like just very like, oh, be so careful. Don't work hard. That would be really bad which is not the same thing as rest, but we still need to have rest. We still need to be still sometimes and just actually do nothing. Scrolling is not the same as nothing. Scrolling is something. (laughs) And your brain, I mean, literally, physically, your brain is not feeling nothing and it's feeling something all the time. And at some point, when you shout at your brain for two hours, you feel tired still, 
right? Because you're, 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 the Lord knew, no, rest, right? Stop cooking, don't do things, just sit and rest. Jesus does have a yoke, right? It's a yoke that goes on, on the shoulders of oxen, so they do work. It's, there's actual work to do, and you actually have to submit to put it on, right? So we can't make that go away. But he says it's an easy yoke and a light burden. So both of those things, Jesus said both of those things about himself, and we need to make sure that we're keeping both of those things in mind and we're not elevating one of them above the other as we serve the Lord. So, now what a wonderful message, right? Come to me, I'm going to heal you, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, I'm going to give you rest. And the Pharisees responded, I don't even have this in my notes, but the Pharisees responded saying, and they went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Okay, right? Like, wow, there was nothing in that. There you said, man, doesn't that sound better than what we're doing? But that was the depth. That's the problem is they felt okay. They were fine. Thank you. Stop upsetting the apple cart. Stop messing up our stuff. I'm going to kill you at some point is the, the, what comes out of your heart when someone comes in and starts intruding on this system that you've built for you that you can control. And they lashed out at that, right? And so this continues, and I wish we had time you know, <laughs> Jesus calls himself, you know, the chosen servant, and then he, he casts a demon out of a guy, and then he starts talking about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and the, the Pharisees are standing right there. And Jesus is like, hey, guess what? You know, God can forgive all kinds of sins, except when you utterly, completely reject his Holy Spirit forever, and then he won't forgive that, and then you go into outer darkness. And the Pharisees are standing right here, listening. You know, like he's, it's getting very intense now, this reaction. And they're starting to come back over the top at him. They're saying, yeah, you cast it out, you cast out a demon because you serve demons, which doesn't even make sense when they say it out loud. You know how sometimes you make an argument and you're like, ah, that was a bad one. I shouldn't have said that, right? And Jesus immediately calls him on. He's like, that's dumb and you know it. Like, that doesn't even make sense. What do you mean I cast out demons because I serve demons? That's stupid. And, And Jesus directly confronts that. He says, that's a kingdom divided against itself. That doesn't make sense. He says, if, if I'm doing that, then who are your sons casting out demons by? It's getting kind of personal now. Like Jesus is willing to confront them directly. And, you know, I wouldn't even tend to read this. If by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's a pretty intense way to phrase it. Right? Not, hey, here, the kingdom of God's here. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Here it is, and you weren't ready for it. And that should be frightening. And that's the things that Jesus is starting to say, is that they now should be in fear because of what they're resisting. He starts talking about good and bad fruit. He talks about the sign of Jonah. Um, everything is getting really, really intense. And that's all just, I wanted to leave that as context for this next part, which I think sometimes we pass over because it's a really weird little parable. But hopefully it, it makes sense for us as we've had this context. Going down to verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. So the longer they had trusted in themselves and their own righteousness, the worse and worse and worse they got. They became more and more evil and corrupt, and they couldn't do anything about it. And Jesus directly attacks that and says, listen, what's going to happen? He said, it's nice that you've, you've swept and cleaned the inside of your personal house and your nation, right? Meaning, well, outwardly, if you looked at the Jews at this time, they would have said, look at all the things we're doing. We have a temple. They pointed up to a Roman temple, 
that was not built by the people of God. It was built by Rome as like a gift for them. Like, hey, here's this thing that I guess you wanted that they did sacrifices in because they were allowed to. We do the sacrifices underneath the watchful eye of a Roman fort. Okay, cool, right? It's not the same, is it? But they, they were constantly looking at these outward things. Oh, we're doing this. We're doing that. Look at our robes. Look at our tassels. We're doing everything right. But inside, it was actively getting worse and worse to the point that their hearts were so awful that they were rejecting the Messiah that the Lord had sent to them. But they felt fine because they were doing everything right. And it was all clean. It was all swept from their perspective. Hey, it's, there's nothing bad in here. We're not doing anything bad, meaning idols. And that's true, right? It used to be that Jews had been captured by idolatry. Oh, we're going to go here to this grove and do this weird thing. We're going to put our kids in the fire over here for this God. That, that had been the pattern, and that's what they'd been judged for. So when they came back, they were serious. They were like, absolutely not. We're not doing idols anymore. Look, we're swept and clean. No idols here. Right? Which is true. They had, they had prevented a lot of sin by their rules. Sometimes you can do that. You work hard enough. You can keep the worst stuff out. But Jesus says, good job. doesn't matter. Because now that you've kept the worst stuff out, you've created a perfect environment for the enemy to just set up shop. And that's what had happened in their lives. Colossians 2, uh, 16 through 17, and then verse 23. says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. There you go. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Legalism is not a problematic solution to the problem, which is libertinism, right? What is libertinism? It's, it doesn't, this is our, our culture and my generation's current solution to the problem. We have a problem. It's called sin. What are we going to do? Ah, it just doesn't exist. Shh. This is fine. It's not sin. We, we, we said it didn't exist anymore. Now we've fixed it. No, we haven't. Right? That's a terrible solution. And it creates terrible fruit in people's lives when you tell them that what they're doing that's opposed to Almighty God isn't a problem. That's an awful, awful thing for you to say to somebody. Because now you're just allowing them to go on with that problem in their life and you won't fix it. You won't love them enough to fix it. How could we do that? Right? That's awful. And we should look at that and say, that's awful. We don't want to go there. Okay. But how are we going to prevent ourselves from getting there? Legalism will not do it. It will not cut it. It's not, it's not the better way if you have to do one or the other. It's just as bad. It's like saying you're afraid to get cured of your cancer because your cancer is keeping you in this nice little room, and if you leave the room, you might get hit by a car. Well, yeah, but you're dying. <laughs> you're actually dying. And you're sitting in there thinking, well, this is good. It's keeping me safe. Not really, and not for long. Right? Like at some point, if you don't fix this problem, you're going to be just as dead as if you were a big smash on the roadside, right? It both gets you to the same place. It's just one of them might be a little slower and it's a little less outward. But that doesn't mean it's not doing the same work on you. Neither of these things can solve the problem of sin because neither of them see that sin is a big enough problem. Again, right? Libertinism says, ah, oh, it's fine. It's not a big deal. God doesn't care. Or he used to care, but now he doesn't care for some reason. Well, what do you mean? Ah, oh, uh, it doesn't matter, right? You know, that's, that's the answer there is, oh, no, sin's fine. People are intrinsically good. That's that answer. Legalism is like, well, people are bad, but I can fix it with my rules. If you, if you follow my set of rules, I can prevent you from being as bad as you could possibly be. I don't think so. Jesus explains the emptiness of sin is not enough because sin is always going to come back. We have to literally be changed. And not only be changed, but we have to become righteous. 
We have to be positively righteous, actually doing all the good works that God wants us to do. That's what, Be holy as I am holy. God isn't just sitting there not messing up. God is actively creating and maintaining a universe in a perfect way with a perfect character. That's what that means, right? It means you have to be like me, not just sitting there, well, if I'm careful, I won't really be terrible. That's not even good enough, even if we could achieve that, which we can't. We're here to do God's will, not just to carefully avoid sin. If we leave things swept and empty and we nitpick and we comb over it, we say, okay, there's some dust over there, I'll clean that up, and that's a mess, but we'll just shut the closet and, and ignore it. We're not, yeah, okay, maybe your house isn't going to be dirty, right? That's fine. Okay, good. You, you've avoided dirt in your house, but your house isn't filled with stuff, furniture and tools and books and kids and all the stuff that a house is supposed to be filled with to do the things a house is supposed to do, right? A house is supposed to accomplish something. And trust me, when, when you start trying to work and use a house to do things, it gets messy. I love y'all, but every time you come over for home fellowship, the house is clean before and it's not quite as clean afterwards. And I could be frustrated by that and say, look at this mess. Yeah, but the mess isn't the point. The point is that you were doing a good work. And I'm, I'm on good biblical foundation to say this. I'm not saying that God gives us license to sin because we're in ministry, heaven forbid. What I'm saying is, God even says, listen, you're, you're, you've got the dirt of the world on your feet. You've been out in the world, and that means that you went out and took a risk. You served me, and you did something for me, and sometimes when you're doing that, you push beyond what your fleshly limits are, and you mess up. But Jesus would rather see us doing that, where we can come back and get grace and try again and, and do better through the power of the Holy Spirit than if we sit carefully and never do anything because we might mess up in the doing of it. That doesn't please the Lord. And there's a practical um, point to this, right? Grace is enough for us. We don't have to worry, and we can just live the life God has given us. If you're struggling against sin, which is good, don't stop doing that, right? Struggling against sin is not the same thing as legalism. Side point, right? You'll have somebody, and this happens in the church all the time. Somebody will come to me and say, yeah, I just, I can't go there. I can't do that or whatever. It's just a problem for me. And other Christians will try and tell them, ah, it's fine. They're not being legalistic. They said it's a problem for them. Like, whoa, 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 back way up and don't ever tell them, well, you can do this. That's not true. You don't know. If they're trying to follow the Lord and it's a problem for them, trust them. Let them walk out how they're supposed to walk with the Lord. That's, don't stumble somebody else, you know. They, they weren't laying it on you. That is legalism, right? And y yes, it can still be legalism if you lay a heavy trip on yourself. But primarily in, in that sense, like, hey, respect that they're trying to walk with the Lord and love the Lord. If you're struggling against sin, though, you're not just going to be able to do that by avoiding things. It's not enough to carefully root out all the bad habits that lead to your failure. You should definitely do that. Right? Be wise, be careful. As the Lord tells you, hey, this is not helpful. Okay, get rid of it. But you have to fill the void with good things. And you have to give space in your life for the Lord to put all your energy that you've been putting towards the dumb stuff Satan wants to do to something good, right? Our, our pastor Troy used to say, you're showing up for work for the enemy and you got to quit doing that and start showing up for work for the Lord, right? Every morning you're waking up and saying, okay, I guess what are we doing, Satan? And it's like, why? You don't have to be here. Like, go serve the Lord. Get, quit doing that and fill all that time that you'd spent in pursuing what the enemy wants you to do with something else. And uh, probably can't say it better than Pastor Chuck Smith, right? You have to imagine in his really super deep voice and him reading it super slow, but we don't have the time for that, so I'm just going to read it in my voice. Pastor Chuck said, I believe in the expelling force of the higher power. I believe the best way to drive out darkness is to turn on the light, not to go around and flail at the darkness, scream at it and yell at it and try and drive it out, just to turn on the light and the darkness automatically flees. Light and darkness cannot coexist. And when Jesus Christ comes into a person's life, when his heart and life is open to receive, then whatever force of darkness may be there is expelled by the power of the stronger force. 
the expelling force of the stronger power, and a man is saved. He doesn't have to worry about a reoccurrence of the problem, even in a worse degree. Better that you bring the light to men, better that you bring them Jesus Christ, that their hearts and lives might be filled with him and with his love, and through his power, the forces of darkness will automatically be dispelled. The Pharisees were resisting this disturbing power that Jesus wanted to come in and just push stuff out, and they didn't want that because that was Jesus' authority, and, faith, and so they resisted it, and they chose their own set of traditions and rules, and they ended up calling the Son of God demonic, opposing his kingdom as satanic, and then killing their own Messiah. But we can't do that. We don't have to choose between two man-centered failures, right? That's a false you ever have somebody present you, well, you have to do this or that. No, I can do this. Right? I can follow Jesus. I don't have to do this or that. Those are both bad. We can instead choose Jesus. Hebrews 4, 9 through 10 says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. And there's a lot of good works for us to do, Right? So when resting from our works doesn't mean like resting from the work God wants. It means resting from our works, right? My rules that I put together to keep me feeling safe and like I'm doing okay. All that stuff. Those don't, you guys know, right? In your heart, we know. It doesn't, I've tried that. It doesn't do it, right? It might keep me looking great outside for a little bit. But a lot of times where that comes from, to be really honest, is it's, there's a scared person at the middle of that who's desperately trying to avoid coming before the Lord in the light and realizing just how bad the problem is. And if I keep these rules going, if I put out this fence of all this stuff, then I can feel in my heart the feeling that Jesus just wants to give me anyway, right? We know, we want to be righteous because we've had an encounter with Jesus and he's pulling us towards that. But we just want to have that feeling without that moment of actually coming to Jesus and how humbling it is to just say, okay, I, here's all the stuff I've got. And Jesus says, nope, none of it. I'm just going to give you this instead. That's incredibly humbling because we literally can't do any of that, right? And sometimes we don't want to do that because we know that that's going to require then us going and doing things that we know are impossible for us to do. It's not possible for me to do a good work the Lord's calling me to do, or it's not possible for me to rule over my anger, so I'm just going to make some rules that tell me I'm ruling over my anger. I can accomplish that. And then I'll know I'm good because I did it, right? And, and I think sometimes the Lord would almost rather that we fail in the Spirit as we get closer to the Lord than that we accomplish something that He didn't ask us to accomplish, trying to rule over ourselves in our flesh. There are good works for us to do, to work hard at, harder than we're able to do in our flesh. They're pretty impossible. It's pretty impossible to love your family. Just as my wife is back there. I love you. Um, it's, it's impossible to love your family the way Jesus wants you to. You can do it on your own pretty well for a while, right? It's impossible to love sinners. They're, they're horrible. And you're also one, so <laughs> you can't do it, right? It's impossible in your heart to even, you can't even have the feelings to want to do these things. Right? Have you ever tried? You're like, this week I'm going to do this. And you don't even, and you wake up the next morning, you're like, but I don't even want to. That's how much of a mess I am. I don't even want to do the thing that I know that I can't actually do. The Lord needs to change absolutely every part of me. And then when we're tired out, we have the rest that we need in Jesus, in the Lord of the Sabbath, right? Let's go back to that analogy. How many times have we, have we spent, and we're just, man, are we ever, there's some activity going on in the ring, man. I'm, there's blood and screaming and something's happening. But is that what the Lord wants us to do? I'd really rather, at this point in my life, I think I've gotten to the place finally with the Lord where I'd really rather just say, Lord, I would like to win. I'm tired of fighting. 
right? I'm tired of getting in there and, man, we're, we're exchanging punches. And at some point, I think the battle is going to turn in my favor with my sin. It isn't, though, because right? it's not out there. It's in here. And so it's constantly producing a little idol factory, they say, right, of different things that I can be chasing after. So instead, I'd rather see, okay, well, what, what does Jesus want to do about it? Because I tell you, when you, when you turn that over to the Lord and you completely surrender, Jesus wins real quick. And sometimes it hurts. Yeah, we read about Jacob, right? Jacob, he got some jujitsu applied to him. <laughs> yeah, there was some, some breaking that happened. So I'm not promising it like, oh, it's easy and it's sweet. Maybe it might hurt, but it's definitely going to hurt a lot less than us continuing to try and do this stuff in our own flesh, right? Lord loves us and his commands are good for us. So let's, wherever that looks like in, in our lives, I think it's important for us to be surrendering that to the Lord and to be walking in that, in that joy and in that rest because that's what the Lord really intended for us to have. And to make sure that we're not taking that away from other people in any way. And I recognize that that, that looks different sometimes for different ones of us. I, there's a generational gap to that sometimes. Sometimes an older generation that's more afraid of letting go of some of the rules that they're used to and a younger generation that doesn't want anybody to ever tell them not to do anything. And both of us need to humble and submit ourselves to the Lord, right? It's, it's, we can't either of us say, well, I'm fine, and the problem is you people over there. Not according to Jesus. There's a lot, you know, that we may need to give to the Lord of who we're used to or what's our identity or whatever, but it's definitely worth it for Jesus.